following is a teaching message from Shaw Community Church. For more information on Shaw, for our teaching resources, visit www.shaw.org.nz. What we're doing this morning, let me set this up for you. We are starting a new series today, and this is a series, a shorter than usual series, which at Shaw means this is only five weeks instead of our usual six-month or longer series, um, but that's our style. And so we are, we're doing this series in the book of Jude. Jude. Anybody heard of Jude? Yes, Grant and Joy have, because they've got a son called Jude. Um, now, so if you've got a Bible, or you've got your Bible on device, turn over to the book of Jude. Let's see if you can find it. That's the, that's the first challenge for you this morning. Um, but if you're not sure, just keep going right. Just keep going right. Jeremy, have you found it? Hands up when you found it. Hands on head when you found it. That's like a Sunday school thing to do. Hands on heads when you found it. Uh, the book of Jude, you just keep going right. If you get to Revelation, you've gone too far. But other than that, it is the second to last book of the Bible, the penultimate book of the Bible. If you get to, if you get to ten-headed dragons and beasts, you've gone too far. Just come back a little bit to the left. Jude is a very short book in the Bible. How many verses is it, Grant? 25? 25 verses. So it's, it's really short. We're still going to take five weeks, of course, to go through this book <laughs> because there is some, there's some fascinating stuff in this book. I've just been studying this the last couple of weeks, and there is some weird, fascinating, intriguing, confronting, challenging, encouraging material in this book. It is, uh, it is going to be uh, an encouragement and a challenge for us, I think. The book of Jude has been described as a fiery cross to rouse the churches. Isn't that good? A fiery cross to rouse the churches, the blazing cross of Jesus Christ at the center of this book. And coming out from that, a challenge to the church in the first century, a challenge for us today. So, this is going to be good. I want to encourage you to read the book of Jude in one setting. That's really easy. I, I always encourage you to do this when we're starting a new book series, and it doesn't get much easier than Jude, does it? I mean, this is only going to take you five minutes, if that. So sometime this week, would you read through this book? Just sit down. Because remember, or if you, you may not know this, Jude is a letter. And it was originally written as a letter. And so if you got a letter in the mail, you don't sit down and go, let me just take one sentence out of the middle of this letter and be encouraged by it. You read the letter. And so I want to encourage you, read it as a letter. You will understand the flow of Jude's thought and the logic of his argument as you read verse 1 through to verse 25. Today we are going to just look at verses 1 through to 4. And I think, Evie and Hannah, are you going to come and read this for us? Yes, come on, girls. You can do a little tag team reading. Here we go. They might need a round of applause to get them up here. Come on. Here we go. Come on, girls. You can do it. Judas, wait. Judas, servant of Jesus Christ and a brother of James. Oh, to those who have been called, who are loved in God, the Father, and kept for Jesus Christ. Mercy, peace, and love be yours in abundance. Dear friends, although I was very eager to write to you about the salvation we share, I felt compelled to write and urge you to contend for the faith that was once for all entrusted to God's holy people. 
For certain individuals whose condemnation was written about long ago have secretly slipped in among you. They are ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into a license for immorality and deny Jesus Christ, our only sovereign and Lord. <laughs> well done, girls. Thank you. That was great reading on tiptoes, Evie. Uh, Liv, sorry. Well done. Okay. So let's try and get our bearings with this, uh, with this letter. Uh, very first word that we hit in the book of Jude is what? Jude. Okay, I'm going to have some work to do this morning, aren't I? Are you, are you guys just asleep or depressed or a bit of both? Or Okay, man, I'm working for it today. Okay, Jude, Jude. Who is Jude? Well, what does he tell us? Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and a brother of who? James, I'm going with rhetorical questions this morning to try and get this going. Okay, a brother of James. Now, the James that we're talking about here is almost certainly the same James who wrote the book of James, okay, which is another book in our New Testament. And what we know about that James is that he was the brother of Jesus, like the sibling, not just brother in Christ. He was the brother of Jesus. So, ergo, if James is the brother of Jesus and Jude is the brother of James, that means Jude is also the brother of? Yes, we're getting there. All right. Jude was the brother of Jesus. He was, he was one of Jesus' own siblings. So just picture that for a minute. He was in the family, Mary and Joseph's family. He, he was alongside other brothers. We know that Jesus had other brothers and I think sisters as well. It could have been quite a big family. And in that family, you've got James and you've got Jude. And so Jude would have seen Jesus growing up. You know, he, 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 he was right there. He was so close to Jesus as a boy watching him, playing with him, seeing Jesus develop, seeing maybe from a distance him go on in his ministry. And what's interesting about Jude and James is it seems like they didn't become followers of Jesus during Jesus' lifetime or his earthly lifetime, which is, I, I think, in a way that's understandable. Like, can you sort of relate to that? It, it's, I mean, it's, it would always be hard to accept that your sibling was the Messiah, right? I would find that hard to accept. I think my boys would find that hard to accept if one of them was the Messiah. The other two are like, really? You know, I, I think it's probably a hard thing to stomach for Jude and for James. Uh, and so during Jesus' lifetime, they just, they remained at a distance from Jesus in terms of they didn't become followers. They didn't become disciples. It was only sometime, either after Jesus' resurrection, possibly after Jesus' ascension, that Jude and James then became followers of Jesus in the sense of acknowledging him as Savior and Messiah and Lord and committing their lives to him. So Jude was kind of a latecomer to all this, but he is still the brother of Jesus. And so that's a fascinating perspective that he brings. That alone makes this a really interesting book. You've got two books in our New Testament written by the biological brothers of Jesus. And one of the questions, if you're really sharp, that you might be asking at this point is, well, why doesn't Jude introduce himself that way? Like, why does he say then, the brother of James and a servant of Jesus Christ? Like, if I was writing this book, that'd be the first thing I'd mention. Jude, obviously, I'm the brother of Jesus. I mean, isn't that, if you are the brother of Jesus, isn't that the card you're always going to play in every single argument that you ever have? It's like, 
I hear where you're coming from, but I'm the brother of Jesus. So that's game over. Really, you're always right. No one ever can disagree with you. I'm the brother of Jesus. That's the trump card you've got. Like I would have put that front and center, but Jude doesn't do that. Why not? And by the way, James doesn't do that either. You look at the epistle to James, he also doesn't describe himself as the brother of Jesus. I think it speaks to the humility of these guys, don't you think? That they chose, as they introduced themselves, not to stand on this pedigree of, well, we're the brother of Jesus, but instead to place themselves on the level of their congregations and say, we are servants of Jesus, like you. And we are servants of Christ, placing themselves underneath the authority of Jesus. So rather than putting themselves on equal footing with Jesus and then over the rest of their congregations, they're placing themselves on the equal footing of everybody else and saying, we are servants of Jesus Christ just like you. I think it, it really speaks to the humility of Jude that he's willing to do that when it probably would have been pretty tempting to play the brother of Jesus card. So Jude is writing this letter. He's writing this sometime in the first century. He's writing this letter to Jewish Christians, Jewish churches, uh, most likely Jewish churches, because there's a lot of Old Testament in this letter, and we will see that much more next week, and we'll dive into some of these stories, but there is just full of these Old Testament references. So it seems like Jude is assuming some familiarity with the Old Testament on the part of his listeners. But really what Jude is about, and this is kind of the overriding theme of the book, is he is warning these Christians, against some false teachers that were infiltrating the church. He was warning the church against these intruders, against these, these people who were bad news, who were influencing Christians and leading them down some pretty dark paths. And again and again in this book, he brings them back to the problem of these false teachers or these false leaders or these infiltrators of the church. And he talks about what they're doing and he talks about the problems that they are causing. And as we'll find out next week, he talks about the way in which God is going to judge them for it. And he doesn't hold back when he describes that judgment. The whole message next week is going to be looking at this difficult theme of the judgment of God. But we're getting ahead of ourselves. He's talking about these false teachers in the church. And he describes them at the end of verse 4. Have a look at this. They are ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into a license for immorality and deny Jesus Christ, our only Savior and Lord. So, two aspects here. There's two problems with these guys. One is an intellectual problem, that they are distorting the teachings of the faith and they're denying some of the teachings of the faith. Not just little minor things. These are not things that Christians just agree to disagree on. These are fundamental things. Jude mentions some of them. The grace of our God. Jesus Christ, our only sovereign and Lord. They're denying that. So they're denying something at the heart of our faith. They're denying the reality of Jesus as our sovereign, as our king. They're denying the reality of Jesus as our Lord. That's pretty fundamental. So there is this intellectual opposition to the faith that's going on with these people. They're taking fundamental tenets of the Christian faith and either distorting them or denying them or perverting them. That's pretty serious. And then, secondly, there is a moral problem with these people. They are, as Jude says, perverting the grace of God into a license for immorality. So they're taking the teachings of Scripture and twisting them as a way of justifying their own lifestyles. And their own lifestyles, we don't know exactly what was going on, but there was some pretty awful stuff 
Seems like there was a lot of sexual immorality with these guys. It seems like they were living lives 180 degrees from where God calls his people to live. That they were not living according to the way of Jesus. And, and this, we're not talking like minor indiscretions. We're not talking about like just wrestling with difficult sin in our lives like we all do. We are talking about walking away from the opposite direction from the way of Jesus and just engaging in practices, behaviors, lifestyles, completely the opposite of the way in which God calls his people to live in his kingdom. So you have this intellectual opposition, you have this total moral uh, lapse, this moral uh, rebellion against the gospel and against the way of Jesus, and all of this is a major threat to the church. And so, in response... Here's what Jude calls these Christians to do. And here's the part that I want us to focus on this morning. Towards the end of verse 3, he says, in fact, let's just back up to the beginning of verse 3. Dear friends, although I was very eager to write to you about the salvation we share. Isn't that interesting? He says, like, this is what I was going to write to you about. He tells us, like, I had this whole other letter in mind. I was going to write to you about salvation. I was going to write to you about all these great positive, good things, but there's such a problem in the church. There's such an existential threat to your faith that here's what I'm going to do, he says. I felt compelled to write and urge you to contend for the faith that was once for all entrusted to God's holy people. Some of your older translations say, once for all entrusted to the saints. Now, I want us to camp out on that phrase, that sentence this morning, the faith Contend for the faith that was <clears throat> once for all entrusted to God's holy people. What does it mean to contend? Well, the word contend is an athletic metaphor. And I hate to take you back to the game this morning, but you're going to have to picture this for just a minute. Because this is the world, not rugby specifically, but this is the world of sports and athletics that this term originally came from, the Greek word for contending. And it was this word that describes the way that athletes would strive to win, that they would struggle, they would strain. This morning, the ABs were striving. They were contending with everything. They didn't quite contend hard enough, but they were contending with every fiber in their being. It, it is to, to struggle forward towards victory. It is to strive. It is, it, it's that sense of there's an opposition coming at me. <clears throat> there is a, there's some sort of fight that's going on. We're in some kind of battle. There's some kind of contest. And we need to move and push and drive and struggle forward. That's the idea of contending. It's, it's not a word that describes neutrality. It's not a word that describes passivity. It is a word that describes a, a, an aggressive movement forward towards a goal and towards victory, contending. Now, what... Are we contending for? We are called to contend, Jude says, for the faith. Now, what is the faith? It's quite important that we understand this. At this point, Jude is not talking about the subjective faith that you feel. Okay, he's not talking about your faith. Or my faith, it's not like my Christian faith. Like we do talk like that, and that's fine. And the New Testament uses the word that way, but not at this point. What Jude is talking about here is the faith. Contending for the faith. The faith is the objective truth of the Christian faith. 
whether you believe it or not, whether you follow it or not, whether you accept it or all of it or not, it is the faith. So it is this body of truth that forms the foundation of what we believe as Christians. It is the body of doctrine, you could use that word. Uh, it is the central core theology that forms the Christian worldview, the Christian faith. We could use the word orthodoxy at this point. It is those central... We're not talking about like minor, trivial, secondary issues. Christians can agree to disagree on all these things. We're talking about the central core things. I'm going to talk in a minute about how we know what those core things are. But we are talking about the center of our faith, the core of our faith, the faith. And this faith, Jude says, was once for all entrusted to the saints. In other words, Jesus passed this faith on to the apostles, to the disciples... The apostles, the first generation of apostles, passed the faith on to the second generation, people like Jude and others who then received it from the first apostles, he says. And then, of course, people like Jude, they passed the faith on to others, third generation. They passed the faith on, fourth generation, on and on it went. And so this faith, this, this thing called the Christian faith, the objective teachings of the Christian faith, it has been passed down, beginning with Jesus, down through the centuries, down through the generations, all the way down to us today. But what Jude says is that this faith was once for all entrusted. And what that means is that even though this faith has been passed down generation, 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 culture to culture to culture to culture, person to person, language to language, there is still an abiding, unchanging quality to the faith. Does that make sense? The core message, the central heart of the Christian faith is unchanging. It was once for all delivered to the saints. What that means is the way that we articulate the Christian faith is going to look different in different generations. The way that we communicate the faith is going to look different. The way that we conceptualize the faith and the, the, the ways in which we go about doing theology are going to look different in different generations. Yes, we are always, always, we must work really hard to contextualize the faith well. But the essential core message of the Christian faith, particularly the reality of Jesus Christ as Lord, as Savior, as the world's only Messiah and Lord, that is good news that doesn't change. We can say it a lot of different ways. We can contextualize it differently cross-culturally. But that essential core, the gospel, the good news, the euangelion, that is an unchanging message, unchanging good news through the generations, passed down, once for all, entrusted to the saints. So, the question then becomes, and here's where this starts to get real for us, what does it mean then for us to contend for the faith today? What does it look like? What does it look like to, to do this, this struggle, this striving, this straining for the faith in our culture today? I think I'm a little nervous preaching this message, honestly, because there's a few different directions this can go, and they're not all healthy. So I'm going to try and head off some dead ends that I think we can go down here. And I want to just give you two ways. This is not even going to be a three-point sermon this morning, okay? I know you're, you're just too depressed for that. We're just going to do two, two points and we go home. Two points. How do we contend for the faith in today's 
culture. Number one, if we are going to contend for the faith, we must know our own story. We must know the biblical story. I don't mean like your life story. I mean the gospel story and the biblical story. And one of the dead ends we go down here is there's a lot of Christians today thinking that they are contending for the faith. And what they're really contending for is their version of the faith. And what they're really contending for is their own little pet hobby horse part of the faith or their own little hobby horse doctrine over here or the faith according to this particular speaker or author or this conference that I went to over here or this really good book that I read and they end up contending for this thing that is not the faith. It is a very narrow, rigid version of the faith that can often distort the faith if we're not careful. When you hear of Christians who are totally obsessed and think that the whole goal of the Christian faith is to change the laws of the nation. And that the whole goal of the kingdom is to bring about good legislation. And that if we can just elect the right politicians and get the right political power and, and get the right political ideology, and that's the total obsessive focus of the faith, I want to suggest we've lost our own story. That we've lost our way. We have lost the gospel story. When you have Christians who are passionate about social justice, love social justice, passionate about environmental causes, good, great causes, but have no time for the church, right off the church, not interested in the church, I want to suggest we have lost our own story and we've become disconnected from something really, really central. When we spend all our time focusing on the things that divide us and throwing rocks at each other, and picking up these minor little things and just attacking one another, throwing little grenades over the fence at each other theologically or doctrinally or politically or whatever it is, and we lose sight of the bigger contest and, and battle that we're actually in, I want to suggest we've lost our own story. And sometimes what we end up contending for is not the faith, it's our little version of it. If we're going to contend for the faith, we've got to know this thing that we're contending for. We've got to know what it is we're contending for. And it's the heart of the gospel and the heart of the scripture and the foundational things upon which we stand together. A few years ago, our elders went through this process, it was quite a few years ago now, of revising or really we, we redeveloped our statement of faith. And you can go on our website and read our statement of faith. I want to encourage you to do this. It would be a really good way of processing what you're hearing this morning. And as we thought about developing the statement of faith, as a church? What are, the, what are the beliefs we hold in common as a church? The way in which we decided to do this was to write it as a story. And I know for some people that immediately sounds waffly and flaky and like airy-fairy and oh, well, that, that doesn't sound like good theology. I'm sure theology is supposed to be like bullet points, isn't it? Like, isn't the Bible just a list of bullet points? Isn't theology supposed to be a list of bullet points? We actually thought, no, we don't see a whole lot of bullet points in the Bible. Um, the Bible comes to us as a narrative and what we want to try and do as faithfully as we can is capture the meta-narrative of the Scriptures. That is, capture the heart of the biblical story, believing that that captures true theology, good theology, orthodox theology. And so we did. And we had some robust discussions, didn't we, Rich? <laughs> good discussion. I mean, this is what elders do, by the way. This is exactly the role that your elders have is to wrestle these things through. And we had some rich discussions. It certainly wasn't just me driving all of this. And so we developed not so much a statement of faith, but a story 
of faith. And that story, I'm not suggesting that we got it exactly right. Like you can, you can haggle over some details and you might this and that and the different shades, but what, what we have tried to capture in that is the heart of the biblical story, the things that really are central, the things that really matter. There's a lot of other things we can talk about and there's a time and a place, but we, we tried to focus on those things that really matter. And that is the solid ground upon which we stand as Christians and that's the solid ground we stand on as a church. And that's what we're going to contend for. We're not going to contend for a whole lot of other minor secondary things. And I know there's always arguments about, well, what's the major thing and what's the minor thing? But we're not going to go contending for and emphasizing and obsessing over a whole lot of second tier things. We are going to focus on the core of the biblical story. And if you read that statement of faith, you are reading, I think, a pretty good summary of Christian orthodoxy. And that is what we hold to as a church. That's who we are as a church. We make no um, secret of it. We are an orthodox church. We're not a progressive church. We're not a conservative church. We're not a liberal church. We are an orthodox Christian church holding to the historic orthodox convictions of the Christian church. Things that have been confessed in the creeds, though not just the creeds, creeds are never an exhaustive statement of faith, but including the historic creeds of the Christian church. We're always going to major on the majors and minor on the minors, and that is essential for us as Christians. So I want to encourage you, we've got to know our own story, and we've got to keep the main thing the main thing. We're not called to contend for our own little minor pet hobby horse doctrines. Let's contend for the biblical story. That means we've got to know what our story is about. Of course, there's no substitute for reading Scripture itself. I'm not saying our statement of faith takes the place of Scripture. There's nothing better you can do than just read the Bible. But have a read this week of our statement of faith and get a sense of this is what we're contending for. All right. Second point. So number one. We need to know our own story. And then number two, we need to uphold biblical truth with radical love or radical grace. Uphold biblical truth with radical love. And both sides of that statement are important. Okay? Now, I'm going to offend all of you now. I'm going to offend some of you first and then some of you second. Right? Here's the first group ready to be offended. The first half of that statement we must uphold biblical truth. We must. We are in a culture, no secret, no, no, no denying, that takes massive exception to many of the core things in the Christian faith, intellectual and moral. Like we, In a sense, we're in a very similar position to Jude's day. We may not have the false teachers. Well, we do have false teachers in the church, but even looking more broadly in our culture, there is intellectual opposition, to the faith, just as there was in Jude's day, and there is moral opposition, just as there was in Jude's day. Like, to claim today that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, that is scandalous in Western culture, isn't it? That is, that's the equivalent of like secular blasphemy. You cannot claim these things. That is, that's the definition of a bigot, someone who claims that there is this exclusive way to find redemption, salvation, eternity, whatever. And yet that is at the heart of what we believe as Christians. That is something on which we're not going to budge and we're not going to blink. This is biblical truth. To claim that there is any such thing 
as God's judgment. This is uncomfortable. We're going to talk more about this next week. But I figure we're all in a bad mood today anyway, so you know, let's just, <laughs> just go there. You know, God, the judgment of God. I mean, leave aside the question of hell and how you conceptualize that. But just whether there is any concept of God's judgment at all, that is abhorrent in our culture, that you would talk about a judge, that you would, like, we are going to be judged. That's a terrible, awful thing to say. To claim that God created human beings, male and female, that is a problematic thing to say. That is highly contested in our culture today. And yet we see in Genesis 1, male, <clears throat> male and female. Hey, Todd, would you mind grabbing me a cup of water? Thank you, man. I appreciate it. We see in Scripture that right at the beginning of Scripture, there is this pattern of God creating male and female. And so we have these convictions. It is always, or listen, I feel this, it is always going to be so tempting for us as Christians to want to slide on these things and to want to shift and to want to give ground. That's, that's the wrong metaphor, but you know what I mean. Uh, in the sense that we, 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 want, we want Christianity to be socially acceptable. Thank you. We want the faith to get a good hearing. We want people to like us, right? We want to make Christianity cool again. It's like we've got the wrong motives, I think, a lot of the time. But we're so, we're so desperate for the faith to be relevant that we end up starting to dilute what we believe, starting to fudge it a little bit, starting to shift on, 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 on what we believe from Scripture. Or if we're not willing to do that, we just ignore it. I want to talk about those things. I want to talk about anything where there might not be total acceptance. We need to remember, my friends, that the cross is always going to be a message of foolishness to the world. And your job is not to make it less foolish. Please don't make it more foolish than it needs to be, but your job is not to make it less foolish. The cross is always going to be a stumbling block to people who don't know Jesus. Paul says the message of the cross will always be a message of offense to some. And again, we don't make it more offensive than it needs to be. But we have to accept, like, our job is not to try and convince the world that the gospel is, is, is really cool or really palatable or, or less foolish. Our job is to communicate well and, yes, to contextualize wisely and with nuance, but ultimately to faithfully and clearly proclaim the good news of Jesus Christ and trust that God will draw people to himself. We've actually got to trust the Holy Spirit in this process as much as anything, don't we? So we need to be willing to stand upon biblical truth and say, as unpopular as it may be, this is where we stand and this is what we believe. All right. Now, having offended half the room, let me come over and offend the rest of you. We must uphold biblical truth, but we must, must, must uphold it with radical love. Here is the reason I'm a little bit nervous this morning. And it's because of this word contend. Because as soon as you start talking about struggling and striving and moving forward and facing opposition, for some Christians, I know, nobody in this room, but some Christians, it's, that's like red meat. It's like, okay, we're gearing up for battle now. And something about this word contend, it just fires up the militant streak in some Christians. It fires up the ones that are just looking for a fight. It fires up the angry Christians who are just looking for a battle, just looking to pick an argument, and they're like, all right, now I've found it in the Bible, we're good, well, let's go. Who, who am I going to beat up verbally today with all my theological convictions? 
And this is the opposite of the way of Jesus. But we can go out there and we can stand on biblical truth, but we can bring that across in a way that is so aggressive and so inflammatory and so, frankly, disrespectful that we do the cause of Jesus a massive disservice. And we undo whatever good work we think we've done by articulating biblical truth because of the way that we bring it across. The way we hold our convictions matters. It's not just what you believe, it's how you believe. And it's how you share that, and it's how you love others that may not share those views, both inside the church and outside the church. We've got to hold truth, but we've got to hold it with truckloads of grace, truckloads of love. This is what Jesus did, didn't he? I mean, if you read the Gospels, Gospel of John, I mean, it starts with Jesus is full of grace and truth. Some people's like that the word grace might not even be there grace and truth. And then you get to John chapter 8, and you remember the story, some of you, about the woman caught in the act of adultery, and Jesus relates to this woman. Everyone else is picking up a stone to throw at her, which frankly sounds like a lot of Christians today, ready to throw the rock, ready to throw the stone. And what does Jesus say? Let the one who's without sin cast the first stone. And then he looks at the woman and he says, who is it that condemns you? And then he says, neither do I condemn you. It's a word of grace. He knew she was broken. He knew she was sinful. He knew that she was an immoral outcast, whatever label you want to put. He knew where she was coming from. He knew the mistakes that she had made and the mess she'd made of her life. But the word that he speaks to her is a word of grace. It wasn't to wave his finger at her and give her a theology lesson. It wasn't to tell her all the reasons that she was wrong. It wasn't even in that moment to call her to repent. Maybe that came later. But it was simply to say, neither do I condemn you. What did she need to hear? Grace. That she was a daughter of her heavenly father. That she was loved unconditionally by God. Now, I know those of you that have read John, you're like, yeah, but what about comes next? And you're right. Jesus does then say, Go and leave your life of sin. But that to me is the beautiful symmetry of grace and truth. The first word is a word of grace. And I think the order is important. The first word is a word of grace. And then, now go and leave your life of sin. The truth is there. She needs to hear it. But the first word is a word of grace. We must follow Jesus' example. He's our saviour. He's showing us the way. We've got to be people of radical love. I think sometimes we just pay lip service to love, but really we just want to be on the side of truth. I spent three weeks a little while ago, three Wednesday nights, talking with our youth about issues around sexuality. And let's just be really controversial for a minute. One of those Wednesday nights, we talked about transgenderism. Now, that is an issue on which, I mean, this is a real issue in our culture. And yeah, even the word issue is not right, because it's not an issue, it's people. But this is something that we must get right as Christians. Because there's too many Christians just standing on the side of truth without any grace. And we can be so dismissive of people. And we can just talk all day about the trans agenda. And we can talk about the queer agenda. And we can talk about the rainbow agenda. Like they're in this dehumanizing way as if these are not actually people at all. It's just some problematic social issue. And I think when we do that, again, we have lost our own story and we've lost the way of Jesus. We need to remember trans people are loved by God, right? They are loved by Jesus. These are people, 
trans people, gender questioning, they are often hurting. They often feel already marginalized by so many other people in their lives. They already feel like the church is absolutely against them. Many are genuinely struggling with gender dysphoria, and all they hear from the church is judgment, condemnation, and a dismissive, derogatory attitude. That is not the way of Jesus. These are people Jesus loves. These are, frankly, people Jesus would be hanging out with if he was here today. Probably more than he'd be in this church service. He'd be hanging out with people who we might consider outcasts, whatever word we want to use. Jesus would love them, love them, love them unconditionally. And I know when I talk like this, some of you on the truth side, you're like, but what about truth? We're going to stand for, yes, but can't we say both things? Can't we say both things? We just seem to be so binary that we're unable to hold two thoughts in our head. Yes, we can say, and in case you missed it, let me say again, Scripture clearly tells us God has created us male and female. I can hold that conviction in my heart and yet love unconditionally a trans person in my life. Anyone who is gender questioning, anyone from the rainbow community, love without condition because they are made in the image of God. That is what we're called to do. Not to be the moral police, not to be the theological police, but to love them and love them unconditionally. That's radical, radical love. And it's hard and it's uncomfortable, but I'm pushing you on this because I think on the love side, we just give lip service to it. And you're all like, yeah, 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 love, love, love. But really, it's truth, you know? No, it's radical, Jesus-shaped, cross-shaped, cruciform love. That's what we're talking about. And it's hard and uncomfortable and costly, but that's the gospel. So it is biblical truth and radical love. Okay. Having offended all of you, let me close with a story, and then we'll go home. There's a a little story, a little analogy that uh, has been in my mind for years now, really, as I, and, and this is really as I think about us as a church and who we want to be and how we contend for the faith, and I've thought about this. Uh, and this story may be apocryphal. I don't even know if it's true, but I'll tell you anyway. Uh, there was a, a tourist who was traveling around the Australian outback, and he was traveling across all these ranches or farms in the outback. And what he noticed is that as he went from farm to farm or ranch to ranch, there were very few fences uh, boundarying pe- people's properties. And so you had a lot of cattle that just seemed to be free roaming. They weren't seemingly connected to one property or another. And he ended up getting into a conversation with one of the ranchers there, one of the farmers, and he said, how is it that you managed to keep your cattle in one place and they don't just wander off? I can't see many fences here. And the rancher simply said to him, around here, around here, (laughs) we don't build fences, we dig wells. And what he meant is you dig a deep well and you keep feeding good water to the cattle, they're not going to go far because they know where the good stuff is and they keep coming back to the living water. You can already see the analogy, can't you? I really like that because that's exactly the kind of church I would like us to be. That's the kind of church I would like to lead. A church in which we're more interested in digging wells than building fences. So a lot of Christians who spend all their time, emotional, mental, spiritual energy, building fences between them and, sadly, mostly other Christians or other churches or other denominations or non-Christians, putting up the big walls and then just firing as many shots as they can to the other side. It is exhausting, and honestly, it is futile, and it does more damage to the cause of Christ than anything else. We need to be those, I want to be someone, who is building, digging, 
a deep well. And that well is the person of Jesus Christ, in case you missed it. He is the, the well of life at the center of our church. A well so deep, it goes down to the living water of the Holy Spirit who bubbles up to give new life and renew the church. That is the, the thing, that he is the person at the very center of our church life. And we will always focus most importantly on him. And we'll trust that as we dig that well as deep as we can and we keep focusing back on Jesus, that he will draw others to him. And that, yes, there's, there's a time to talk about boundaries and there's a time to talk about these things, but we trust that people are not going to go far when the living water is drawing them to life. That's going to be our focus. That's going to be where we spend our time and effort in this church. So, what does it mean to contend for the faith? Let's know our own story. Simple as that. Have a read. Have a read of our statement of faith and have a habit of getting into Scripture and get to know the gospel story. Let's uphold biblical truth and be willing, hard as it is, to contend for truth in a post-truth world. But let's hold truth with radical, unconditional love, unconditional grace, following in the way of Jesus. Amen. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you for the faith that has been passed down through so many generations to get to us today. We thank you for Jude and his ministry and this letter that he's written to encourage and challenge the churches. We hear it today as a challenging word to us. We want to thank you for those that came after him down through the centuries who have often at great cost to themselves passed on the faith, passed on the faith passed on the faith, all the way down to us here in New Zealand. We think of those in our lives, Jesus, who have passed on the faith to us, those who we've heard the message from, family, friends, people at uni or school, and we thank you for them, and we thank you for the courage they had to share the faith with us. As we think today, God, about passing on this faith to others, we pray that you would give us great boldness, to be able to clearly and faithfully speak the truth of Scripture, the truth of the gospel, the truth about you, Jesus, whenever we have the opportunity. But help us, God, to speak it with love, with your heart, God. That's with your heart, your heart of love, your heart of compassion. Give us your heart of grace. Help us not to be unkind and cruel and mean as we so often seem to want to be. But Jesus, just give us open, loving hearts towards others, just as your heart is so open and loving towards us. Help us to be people who can hold grace and truth together and contend well for the faith in our world. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. This has been a teaching message from Shaw Community Church. For more of our teaching resources, or to donate to our teaching resource ministry, or for more information on Shaw Community Church, visit www.shaw.org.nz. Alternatively, you can email office at shaw.org.nz or phone 09 415 0455. Thank you for listening.